0: from history, and from the Word of God. Welcome to the Sabrook Meeting House, an audio production of Saybrook Ministries.
1: We live in an age of peculiar spiritual danger. Never perhaps since the world began was there such an immense amount of mere outward profession of religion as there is in the present day. A painfully large proportion of all the congregations in the land consists of unconverted people who know nothing of heart religion, never come to the Lord's table, and never confess Christ in their daily lives. Myriads of those who are always running after preachers and crowding to hear special sermons, are nothing better than empty tubs and tinkling cymbals without a jot of real, vital Christianity at home. The parable of the sower is continually receiving most vivid and painful illustrations. The wayside hearers, the stony ground hearers, the thorny ground hearers, abound on every side. The life of many religious professors in this age, I fear, is nothing better than a continual course of spiritual dram drinking. They are always morbidly craving fresh excitement, and they seem to care little what it is, if only they get it. All preaching seems to come alike to them, and they appear unable to see differences, so long as they hear what is clever, have their ears tickled, and sit in a crowd. Worst of all, there are hundreds of young, unestablished believers who are so infected with the same love of excitement that they actually think it a duty to be always seeking it. Insensibly almost to themselves, they take up a kind of hysterical, sensational, sentimental Christianity until they are never content with the old paths and, like the Athenians, are always running after something new. To see a calm-minded young believer who is not stuck up, self-confident, self-conceited, and more ready to teach than learn, but content with a daily, steady effort to grow up into Christ's likeness and to do Christ's work quietly and unostentatiously at home is really becoming almost a rarity. Too many young professors show how little deep root they have and how little knowledge of their own hearts, by noise, forwardness, ready to contradict and set down old Christians and overweening trust in their own fancied soundness and wisdom. Well will it be for many young professors of this age if they do not end, after being tossed about for a while and carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by joining some petty, narrow-minded censorious sect, or embracing some senseless, unreasoning, crotchety heresy. Surely in times like these, there is great need for self-examination. When we look around us, we may well ask, how do we do about our souls? In handling this question, I think the shortest plan will be to suggest a list of subjects for self-inquiry and to go through them in order. By doing so, I shall hope to meet the case of everyone on whose ears this may fall. I invite every listener to join me in calm, searching, self-examination for a few short minutes. I desire to speak to myself as well as to you. I approach you not as an enemy, but as a friend. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that you might be saved. Romans 10 verse 1. Bear with me if I say things that at first sight look harsh and severe. Believe me, he is your best friend who tells you the most truth. So let me ask in the first place, do we ever think about our souls at all? Thousands of people, I fear, cannot answer that question satisfactorily. They never give the subject of religion any place in their thoughts. From the beginning of the year to the end, they are absorbed in the pursuit of business, pleasure, politics, money, or self-indulgence of some kind or another. Death, judgment, eternity, heaven, hell, and a world to come are never calmly looked at and considered. They live on as if they were never going to die, rise again, stand at the bar of God, or receive an eternal sentence. They do not openly oppose religion, for they have not sufficient reflection about it to do so, but they eat, drink, sleep, get money, spend money, as if religion was a mere fiction and not a reality. They are neither Romanists, Socinians, infidels, high church, low church, nor broad church. They are just nothing at all and do not take the trouble to have opinions. A more senseless and unreasonable way of living cannot be conceived. But they do not pretend to reason about it. They simply never think about God, unless frightened for a few minutes by sickness, death in their families, or an accident. Barring such interruptions, they appear to ignore religion altogether and hold on their way, cool and undisturbed, as if there were nothing worth thinking of except this world. It is hard to imagine a life more unworthy of an immortal creature than such a life as I have just described, for it reduces a man to the level of a beast. But it is literally and truly the life of multitudes in our country, and as they pass away, their place is taken by multitudes like them. The picture, no doubt, is horrible, distressing, and revolting, but unhappily, it is only too true. In every large town, in every market, on every stock exchange, in every club, you may see specimens of this class by its scores. Men who think of everything under the sun except the one thing needful, the salvation of their souls. Like the Jews of old, they do not consider their ways. They do not consider their latter end. They consider not that they do evil. Isaiah 1 verse 3. Haggai 1, verse 7, Deuteronomy 32, verse 29, and Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Like Galio, they care for none of these things. They are not in their way, Acts 18, verse 17. If they prosper in the world, get rich, and succeed in their line of life, they are praised and admired by their contemporaries. Nothing succeeds in our country like success. But for all this, they cannot live forever. They will have to die and appear before the bar of God to be judged. And then, what will the end be? When a large class of this kind exists in our country, no listener need wonder that I ask whether he belongs to it. If you do, you ought to have a mark set on your door, as there used to be a mark on a plague-stricken house two centuries ago, with the words, Lord, have mercy on us, written on it. Look at the class I have been describing and then look to your own soul. Let me ask in the second place whether we overdo anything about our souls. There are multitudes in our country who think occasionally about religion, but unhappily never get beyond thinking. After a stirring sermon, after a funeral, under the pressure of illness, on Sunday evening, When things are going badly in their families, when they meet some bright example of a Christian, or when they fall in with some striking religious book or tract, they will at the time think a good deal and even talk a little about religion in a vague way, but they stop short, as if thinking and talking were enough to save them. They are always meaning, intending, purposing, resolving, wishing, and telling us that they know what is right and hope to be found right at last. But they never attain to any action. There is no actual separation from the service of the world and sin, no real taking up the cross and following Christ, no positive doing in their Christianity. Their life is spent in playing the part of the Son in our Lord's parable, to whom the Father said, Go work in my vineyard, he answered, and said, I go, sir, and went not. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 30. They are like those whom Ezekiel describes, who liked his preaching, but never practiced what he preached. They come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do not do them. Ezekiel 33, verses 31 and 32. In a day like this, when hearing and thinking without doing is so common, no one can justly wonder that I press upon men the absolute need of self-examination. Once more, then, I ask my listeners to consider the question, Of my text. How do we do about our souls? Let me ask in the third place whether we are trying to satisfy our consciences with a mere formal religion. There are myriads in our country at this moment who are making shipwreck on this rock. Like the Pharisees of old, they make much ado about the outward part of Christianity while the inward and spiritual part is totally neglected. They are careful to attend all the services of their place of worship and regular in using all its forms and ordinances. They are never absent from communion when the Lord's Supper is administered. They are often keen partisans of their own church, sect, or congregation and ready to contend with anyone who does not agree with them. Yet all this time there is no heart in their religion. Anyone who knows them intimately can see with half an eye that their affections are set on things below and not on things above, and that they are trying to make up for the want of inward Christianity by an excessive quantity of outward form, and this formal religion does them no real good. They are not satisfied. Beginning at the wrong end by making the outward things first, They know nothing of inward joy and peace and pass their lives in a constant struggle, secretly conscious that there is something wrong and yet not knowing why. Well, after all, they may go on from one stage of formality to another until, in despair, they take a fatal plunge and fall into popery. When professing Christians of this kind are so painfully numerous— no one need wonder if I press upon him the paramount importance of close self-examination. If you love life, do not be content with the husk, shell, and scaffolding of religion. Remember our Saviour's words about the Jewish formalists of his day. This people draweth nigh with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship. Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. It needs something more than going diligently to church and receiving the Lord's Supper to take our souls to heaven. Means of grace and forms of religion are useful in their way, and God seldom does anything for his church without them. But let us beware of making shipwreck on the very lighthouse that helps to show the channel into the harbor. Once more I ask, How do we do about our souls? Let me ask in the fourth place whether we have received the forgiveness of our sins. Few reasonable people would think of denying that they are sinners. Many, perhaps, would say that they are not so bad as many and that they have not been so very wicked and so forth. But few, I repeat, would pretend to say, that they had always lived like angels and never done, said, or thought a wrong thing in all their days. In short, all of us must confess that we are more or less sinners, and, as sinners, are guilty before God. And, as guilty, we must be either forgiven or lost and condemned forever at the last day. Now, it is the glory of the Christian religion that it provides for us the very forgiveness that we need, full, free, perfect, eternal, and complete. This forgiveness of sins has been purchased for us by the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased it for us by coming into the world to be our Savior and by living, dying, and rising again as our substitute in our behalf. He has bought it for us at the price of His own most precious blood, by suffering in our stead on the cross and making satisfaction for our sins. But this forgiveness, great, full, and glorious as it is, does not become the property of every man and woman as a matter of course. It is not a privilege that every member of a church possesses merely because he is a member. It is a thing that each individual must receive for himself by his own personal faith, lay hold on by faith, appropriate by faith, and make his own by faith. Or else, as far as he is concerned, Christ will have died in vain. He that believeth on the Son hath life everlasting, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3 verse 36. No terms can be imagined more simple and more suitable to man. It is only faith that is required, and faith is nothing more than the humble, heartfelt trust of the soul that desires to be saved. Jesus is able and willing to save, but man must come to Jesus and believe. All that believe are at once justified and forgiven, but without believing there is no forgiveness at all. Now, here is exactly the point, I am afraid, where multitudes of professing Christian people fail and are in imminent danger of being lost forever. They know that there is no forgiveness of sin except in Christ Jesus. They can tell you that there is no Savior for sinners, no Redeemer, no Mediator, except Him who was born of the Virgin Mary and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried. But here they stop and get no further. They never come to the point of actually laying hold on Christ by faith and becoming one with Christ and Christ in them. They can say he is a savior, but not my savior. A redeemer, but not my redeemer. A priest, but not my priest. An advocate, but not my advocate. So they live and I, unforgiven. No wonder that Martin Luther said many are lost because they cannot use possessive pronouns. When this is the state of many in this day, no one need wonder that I ask men whether they have received the forgiveness of sins. An eminent Christian lady once said in her old age, The beginning of eternal life in my soul was a conversation I had with an old gentleman, who came to visit my father when I was only a little girl. He took me by the hand one day and said, My dear child, my life is nearly over, and you will probably live many years after I am gone. But never forget two things. One is that there is such a thing as having our sins forgiven while we live. The other is that there is such a thing as knowing and feeling that we are forgiven. I thank God I have never forgotten his words. Once more, let us ask, in the matter of forgiveness of sins, how do we do? Let me ask in the fifth place whether we know anything by experience of conversion to God. Without conversion, there is no salvation. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Matthew 18, verse 3, John 3, verse 3, Romans 8, verse 9. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. We are all by nature so weak, so worldly, so earthly-minded, so inclined to sin, that without a thorough change we cannot serve God in life and could not enjoy him after death. Just as ducks, as soon as they are hatched, take naturally to water, so do children, as soon as they can do anything, take to selfishness, lying, and deceit. And none pray or love God unless they are taught. High or low, rich or poor, gentle or simple, we all need a complete change, a change that is the special office of the Holy Ghost to give us. Call it what you please. New birth, regeneration, renewal, new creation, quickening, repentance. The thing must be had if we are to be saved. And if we have the thing, it will be seen. Sense of sin and deep hatred to it, faith in Christ and love to him, delight in holiness and longing after more of it, love to God's people and distaste for the things of the world, these these are the signs and evidences that are always accompanying conversion Myriads around us, it may be feared, know nothing about it. They are, in scripture language, dead, asleep, blind, and unfit for the kingdom of God. Year after year, perhaps, they go on repeating the words of the creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost, but they are utterly ignorant of his changing operations on the inward man. Sometimes they flatter themselves that they are born again because they have been baptized, or go to church, or receive the Lord's Supper, while they are totally destitute of the marks of the new birth, as described by John in his first epistle. And all this time the words of Scripture are clear and plain, except ye be converted, ye shall not enter into the kingdom. Matthew 18, verse 3. In times like these, no listener ought to wonder that I press the subject of conversion on men's souls. No doubt there are plenty of sham conversions in such a day of religious excitement as this. But bad coin is no proof that there is no good money. Nay, rather it is a sign that there is some money current that is valuable and is worth imitation. Hypocrites and sham Christians are indirect evidence that there is such a thing as real grace among men. Let us search our own hearts, then, and see how it is with ourselves. Once more, let us ask, in the matter of conversion, how do we do? From Practical Religion by J.C. Ryle, published in 1900.
0: Thank you for joining us this week at the Saybrook Meeting House. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast. Saybrook Ministries' mission is to provide didactic and devotional content from the Christian faith delivered to the saints, recovered and refined by the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to visit SaybrookMinistries.org for continually updated Christian content designed to inspire and invigorate our imagination and intellect. Join us next week for another journey to the Saybrook Meeting House. Until then, may God bless you.